Let's turn our Bibles to Mark, the sixth chapter, and we're going to look at verses 45 through um, 56 today. Let's just stand together as we honor God's Word. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplace. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak and all who touched it were healed. Glorious God, we praise you and we thank you for this day and for this time we have in worship and time we have in your word. Thank you, Lord, that you do truly speak to us through your word. And I pray, Father, today as we take it up and we look together, that we will together see you word speak to us today in a way that touches us and changes us and forms us and corrects us and inspires us and lifts us up and empowers us and gives us our mission in life, gives us our purpose in life. For we thank you, Father, that you have made us to be disciples of Jesus Christ. Not just following him around from time to time, not just hoping he'll help us when we need him, not trying to integrate him into our life. For surely we are his witnesses. and He is integrating us into his life, into his mission. And I pray that will become very apparent to us, Father, and a great joy to us. We are not our own. And without him, without you, we can do nothing. So we bless you today and pray that you will bring us into your purposes and your ways. Speak to us. From your word. Open our eyes, as the prophet said, that we might behold wondrous things from your law today. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. This is now the second incident that is taking place on the Sea of Galilee. When I say incident, both of these are times when the disciples once earlier they were with Jesus as he was in the boat, great storm, winds, 
came whirling upon them, and they found him sleeping, and they woke him up, they brought him to the front, said, why don't you throw in with us and help us get out of this problem, and he looked at them as if he was so curious as to what they were so worried about, and simply said, peace be still, why, don't, why, do, you have, why do you have such little doubt? And there was an amazement that came over them that, that morning. And here now we see in the middle of the night they are in a similar situation. Jesus is not with them at this time. He's um, observing them from a distance. And as a result, we see him demonstrating to them who he is. He is assuming they're understanding who he is as he had this authority over the elements of the earth. And now he is taking them to a higher level of potential revelation for them. It's really important for us to remember that Jesus is not crucified yet. He has not been crucified. He has not died. He has not borne the sins and, and with his blood purchased the sins of his sheep. And as a result, we see him breathing the Spirit. We see the presence of the Spirit. We see the presence of Jesus. In fact, do you recall when he was in the house of, of Levi, Matthew, and he was accused of casting out devils by the spirit of the devils. And he was, um, he was alarmed by this. And his disciples were with him, and they were alarmed by all this, as if they were in trouble. And we, found, we find him over and over again seeming to be not quite up to what they're hearing, not, not understanding what is taking place around them. And it's clearly because this is a point when Jesus is coming, announcing the coming of the kingdom of God, the rule of God on the earth. And people have not yet come into that kingdom because the way into the kingdom is through him, through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection. That is the means for us to come into his kingdom. It says in Colossians, we're translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And as a result, we come seeing him proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is near you, he said. And the kingdom of God is in your midst. But we see them still misunderstanding what he's talking about. I mean, in this text, does it surprise you when you hear this about how they, they were hardened in their hearts and they didn't understand what just took place with the loaves and the fishes. They didn't understand what was taking place. And as a result, there is a, there's a major shift that's taking place. Am I bumping this mic or something? What's bumping it? Huh? My glasses? Well, that's your problem, brother. <laughs> see. See if I can see well enough with these glasses. <laughs> yeah, what do you know? I can see. I can't see you, but I can see. The... Um, and so there's, a, there's something that's happening, and I'm going to use a big word, eschatologically here. In this whole time frame, there's a transition that's taking place when people are coming and they're looking at Jesus, and some of them just want to be healed by this healer guy. That was the 
view of some of those, of, of the magician, the person that can work things and do things. And, and then you know, the reputation in the area was there's magicians and there were people that would heal people. And they'd have special cloaks that they would wear and, and all kinds of uh, regalia like that that people would put their trust in and they would see, they'd think they were being healed. And so the woman who had the issue of blood, she was reaching out for that, thinking that was the key to the whole thing. That Maybe it was his robe that was doing it. We see that same place here that in the end of this passage of Scripture. This isn't Jesus setting up a means how people get saved by touching his garments. That wasn't his goal here. That's the person's rationale here. They're still seeing things from that old perspective. Yet he is bringing them into a place of transition, a place of cataclysmic change. And the whole earth is starting to change. Everything is starting to change as the kingdom of God is coming into focus. The old covenant is gone. The new has come. Paul said that. The old is gone. The new has come. And even in our day, we take that scripture and we personalize it into my personal conversion. I used to be in darkness, now I'm in light. He says the old is gone. The new has come. It's not just personal conversion he's talking about. It's not just personal religion he's talking about. He's talking about a whole new rule on the earth. Now, just as a bit of a background, because this is gonna, we're going to touch these things, we're going to see how these interpret this whole text of Scripture for us. We see even the presence of signs, of miracles, healings. These are signs of the kingdom of God coming into the earth, the rule of God, the kingdom of God coming into the earth. And how is it coming? It's coming by the Messiah. Long ago, he'll be, he's coming, and with him, he's bringing this kingdom, this rule of God, and there's going to be a whole new world. And the Jewish eschatological hope, the Jewish view of the, all this was that from creation all the way till eternity, Creation till eternity, God was ruling on the earth. At the fall, God's rulership was lost. And as a result, he rose, raised up finally a nation to declare his name, and he was seeking to show his glory in that nation and promising that in that nation, his people, people of God, would dwell this new kingdom, and all Satans would be thrown off. All opposers, oppressors, would be thrown off when the Messiah came and he would rule in Jerusalem for eternity. Long time. Thousand years. Long time. So it's very simple. Creation to Messiah is ruled by Satan, rules the earth. And then after that, Messiah rules the earth, or God rules the earth. Very simple viewpoint. Eschatology, the end. Study of the end. However, they also believed that it was going to be a political overthrow. Whoever the Satan was, the oppressor was at that time, and, and Jewish people had oppressors all the way through their whole history. Always someone conquering them, always something oppressing them. And the old covenant, and they called them Satans. It wasn't Lucifer, it was Satans. It was powers, political powers that would oppress them, take them over, and then they would chafe against them until finally they had a freedom. We see this really clearly when we think of the, um, the, uh, the judges 
and the whole sequence of the kings and the judges that would come and save them once they got in really trouble. And they would rescue them and set them free. They would be under God's rulership again. Finally, Samuel was the last judge. You know, we said in the Old Testament, and it's constantly this up and down and up and down and up and down. And so it's always promised that one would come. Moses said, there is a prophet coming. There is one coming. And he will rule in the earth. He'll, be, he'll bring God's power and rule in the earth. And the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea under the rulership of the Messiah. So when John the Baptist came and started baptizing, declaring, repent for what? Kingdom of heaven is coming. The one's coming after me. The one is coming. The prophet is coming. Jesus. Of course, we see it as Jesus now, but he was talking about the one is going to come. And he's going to come with fire, and he's going to come with power. He's going to, and there, and just excitement just started rising. Because everyone said they were looking for the Messiah, because at that time, by the way, who was the Satan during this time frame, John the Baptist? Rome. The great Satan. And when Jesus started doing miracles, casting out devils, preaching the gospel, and then confronting the leadership, the corrupt leadership in the nation, everyone's senses just thought, this is him. He's going to be the king. Remember what John said? After this, some, some, after a miracle? Remember what John's gospel says about it? Jesus said he withdrew from that kind of spirit because they knew he wanted to, they want to make him king. They were going to make him king. And that was not what he came. He didn't come to be a political king. He still isn't here to be a political king. The United States is not going to be the messianic kingdom for a thousand years. That's the Jewish viewpoint. That is long gone. He came to throw off a greater Satan. The Satan that controls the hearts of people in every age. And as a result, we see this new birth, this, this coming into a new birth, being born into a kingdom. It's not just being born again, I just keep on going the way I am. I am literally transformed from a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. As a result, it's, a, it's transforming. I was speaking to someone this week about this. About, you know, we, we, we think about our conversion, especially, and, and it becomes a bit confusing when you're in the covenant of faith and you make a profession of your faith in Jesus Christ as a small child. It, it, it can be confusing. Sometimes it's not confusing because there's a consistency about it, but sometimes it is confusing because when you step away from that covenant context of your, of your church and your parents and their faith, you tend to revert into something that doesn't look much like a Christian. But when God breathes in us new life, when we're, we come through that transition of, going, of dying with Christ and rising in Him, in His resurrection, we're translated from that kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. I remember when this took place to me in 1973. I literally just, I thought it was a whole new world. I didn't, couldn't identify with anything that was going on before. I still can't. Still, I still see myself in a kingdom of God. God's rule. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Do you ever say that to yourself? Whose world is this? What am I worried about? God is in control. God is ruling. This is His kingdom. Do you believe that? Is that what it's experienced in your life? Because that is what Jesus came to bring us into. As a result, it's not just 
personal conversion. It's not just my personal life. It just can't be private. It literally burst out. We see these, these incredible con- contradictions of the light and the darkness and contrasts of these two things. And this is what is taking place here and is taking place, first of all, in the lives of 12 men who Jesus is preparing to be ones who are going to carry this gospel to others. But the power and the means to do it have not yet been manifested. They they did a pretty good job when they went out two by two and came back having preached the words that Jesus preached, having been given power to drive out demons and to heal the sick. We saw this taking place. They even started having their own gathering of people who followed them back. And, and as a result, Jesus sweeps them away. Remember that? He said, you're looking really tired. You haven't had anything to eat. Come with me. Gets on a boat. Off they go. And they feed 5,000 people. And you'd think after feeding, being in part of a, of a 5,000 person feeding, that you had start five loaves and two fish, and he'd turn those into enough to have 12 basketfuls left over after everyone was full and oversat- you know, satisfied, the word is. Kind of like stuffed. <laughs> and now it says they don't even, they don't, they don't really know what that was all about. And we see some things taking place very early in this text of Scripture. It gives us some keys to this. By the way, Jesus has this plan. It's going to continue to be his plan again and again and within his own context and then in, his, in the context following. But you know, in, in verse 45, it says, Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into a boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. Now, you know, they wound up here by going to a remote place. They thought they were going to a remote place, and the remote place became this mobbed place. But notice the emphasis. He made his disciples get into the boat. By the way, the word immediately is one that John uses over and over again. This is about the 12th time he's used it now. We've seen this again and again. It, um, it means right now. It wasn't, it, was, it wasn't like, well, immediately, and then you know, two days later they left. No, it was right at that point. Now, why was Jesus so exercised in the idea of getting his disciples away from this massive crowd? It it seems like a great time to start a local church and take an offering. Doesn't it? 5,000 people fed, man, let's take an offering. Let's start a church. This is going to be a mega church. It's going to be fantastic. Like up on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? When he sees these apparitions of Moses and Elijah coming down to meet with Jesus, his his whole countenance turned white. Remember this? And here's Peter and James and John, I think it was. Was it the three of them? Peter, James, and John? Yeah? Come on, say, yeah, I see you're, not, you're being real careful, aren't you? He has disciples with him, and they see this magnificent thing. And what does Peter do? He says, Lord, let us build three tabernacles here. It's going to be a great local church. A temple, a new temple. Someone's always got an idea, you know, how to start something really big. And, and, and in doing so, they missed the whole point of everything. 
And here they've fed 5,000 people. They've been a part of this feeding of the 5,000 people. I mean, you got a basket. Apparently has very little in it. But as far as you start giving it to people, you're looking in your basket and things start reproducing right in your basket. The flipping never stops, you know. The warm, it's warm bread, never stops. It's like incredible. It's just a phenomenal moment for these guys. And what do you think is in their heart? What eschatological view is in their heart? It's that old covenant, that old eschatological view that the Messiah is going to come and he's going to do these spectacular things and he's going to throw off Satan. He's going to throw off Rome. and He's going to rule. He's going to set up a kingdom and it's going to have a rule. He's going to rule from Jerusalem. Maybe that abomination called Herod's temple, Herod, Herod's temple is going to be destroyed and they're going to see the second coming of the Solomon temple being rebuilt. Man, they can just, I can just see in a moment's time they're thinking this as they look at all these people and Jesus looks in their eyes and says, you guys, all you guys, get in the boat right now and get out of here. Why? Because they're not believing anything other than what they've already hoped for from before. Hope the Messiah, that he's the Messiah. He's got to be the Messiah. Look at this guy. He can walk, well, they're going to see him walk on water later. He can, he can stop storms, okay? He can cast out devils. He can preach in a way that people have never heard before. This, is God, this person has to be our Messiah. And they're absolutely right. Except their definition of who he is and why he came and what he's going to do are completely wrong. They're the product of a hardened heart that is trying to raise up something politically to please men, to please people. As a result, just a second's time, a few seconds' time, it says he made his disciples. He compelled them to get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida. I wonder what that conversation was like. You ever wonder? Who's protesting? But Lord, but Lord, look at this. In John's gospel, it says that in the next uh, pericope, it says that he got out of the boat in the future and they said um, something about, where's the bread? You know, where, as if they were thinking, where's all that food we had left over? There's people gathering here too. And he said, all you did, you, you, all you, the depth you went is just the bread and the fishes. You don't really see what's really going on here. That it's not, this is not the substance of the kingdom. The kingdom of God's substance is not meat and drink. It's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The things that you're wanting are not the substance of God's presentation to you. But I thought if I became a Christian, I would have A, B, C, D, E, F, G. I'd, I'd get things. I'd be, I'd, I'd, I'd be healed. I'd be become rich. I become prosperous. We're, we're, we miss it so often, don't we? We're so carnal. We're so aimed at satisfaction as the most important subject of the kingdom of God. Satisfaction versus peace. And we see this eschatological statement, this eschatological moment in John chapter 6, verse 15, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain beside himself. He gets his disciples out of here quick. Doesn't want them to be tainted by this. Doesn't want them to be 
taken over by this. And he dismissed the crowd. While he dismissed the crowd, go home. You haven't quite got it yet. Go home. Got a long way back. Glad you came for lunch, but now it's time to go home. Go back. Go home. Almost as if he's not concerned with the current audience only getting this. Now, who sends a 5,000 person crowd away? Who does that? Unless it's not your goal to gather 5,000 people and have them become totally dependent upon you for every physical need they have. As if they're, you know, they, they need this, you give it to them. They need that, you give it to them. Or, or, am I here alone or were you guys with me? Yeah? Okay. Okay? Okay, verse 46. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Now, it seems like every time that Jesus separates himself from the disciples and goes to a solitary moment for himself, everything falls apart for them. Right? When he's with them, they look pretty good. But when he leaves them, goes off by himself, does it sound familiar? This is how it works for you, too. You know, we, we get out there on the limb by ourselves and we think we got something, and man, when things starts falling apart. We don't understand what's going on, I'm not sure why this is happening. You know, it can be as small as a, a printer jamming on a Sunday morning. And you literally are saying, What? What? What's going on? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? <laughs> yeah, well, there's that and more, right? It doesn't matter. <laughs> It can be the smallest thing, and it can make us think that, you know, life has now ended. Uh, there's nothing I can do. Um, God, you've abandoned me. Poor me. And then we realize it all fits right into a very, very good program. In fact, it can be a very good il illustration right in this sermon here, didn't it? He went up to a mountain to pray. Verse 47, later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw his disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. In the other Gospels, let's see which one, tells us they were several furlongs away out on the water. So they were well out onto the water. Couldn't just get back quickly. And they're trying to, to, to row. The problem with these little boats was they were not meant to be rowboats. You had both rows, both uh, oars to guide them, and you had sails to bring you out gently toward fish, and then to bring you gently back to shore. These weren't boats that were navigable, that you navigated with over long distances. These were boats that were meant to catch fish in. And here they are now, they're straining at their oars. They've taken down the sails, they're straining at the oars, and they're in real trouble because the wind has come suddenly upon them in the middle of the lake. So he was looking at them a far way off to the middle of the lake. And he was alone in the land, just sitting there. Do you think Jesus was worried? Man, I better do something. These guys are in trouble. Do you think that was what Jesus was thinking? Do you think that was what he's thinking? Is that what you think about Jesus when you're having problems? 
Where are it? We can have these desperate prayers. Lord, save me. Come get me. Come help me. You ever have those prayers? If you say no, you're a liar. <laughs> we have them. We feel overwhelmed. We have these unbelieving, feeble hearts. We know this in our head, but when the circumstances come, man, we just we revert to be this person that seems desperate. We're straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Straining at the oars. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. Okay, this is just, that, just that statement is pretty incredible. Who can walk on water? What does the Old Testament have? Does the Old Testament have anything to say about this? Who can walk on water? Only God can walk on water. See this over and over again. Illustration of Psalms chapter 77 and verse 19. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waves, though your footprints were not seen. Now that is just, that's, that's one scripture, there's a dozen at least. And we see this statement that only God can transverse over water by walking on it, literally walking on it with his feet. Although there's not feet, he's a spirit, but just this metaphor of God's walking on water. Probably knew that text. These are fishermen. You know? You think, I can walk on water? I mean, it might have been the way that they addressed each other from time to time. Hey, get that over there. Get that net out there. You think I can walk on water? Think I'm God? You think it's possible? I think it's highly possible. And here they are. They're watching this something coming toward them on the water. He went out to them, walking on the water. When he was about to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost and cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. They saw him walking on the lake and he was about to pass them by. It's a little bit of language that caused a lot of problems translation-wise. It's probably one way to try to understand it as if he was walk- well, why is Jesus walking by them? I thought he went out to them. Now he's walking by. Clearly, this idea of God's appearing to them. Only God can walk on water. This must be God walking. We see this second statement of this epiphany that is taking place right before their eyes. His purpose is not to go out there and just stop, stop, the thing, stop things from happening so that you know, they'll be safe. He is going to appear to them. He's going to show them who He is. Now, if you see a person walking toward you, and you know the Scripture says that only God walks on water, what's your conclusion about that person on that water? It's God. This is God. And they said, they thought it was a ghost. Something that's, coming from some other place, some other dimension. 
Something that's not human like they're used to. Someone that's like an apparition. And as he walked past them or walked to them, this brings up some, some thoughts in the Old Covenant of God walking past people. What did he do? Remember when God walked past Moses? Moses wanted to see God. And the Scripture states that anyone who looks at God will die. You can't see God and die. And so what did God do for Moses when he was walking before him? It says he put him in a cleft of a rock. He put his hand over the cleft and he walked past and as he, he left his hand and Moses saw him from the back. It's, the, the word epiphany means an appearing of the divine. Appearing of God before us. He's first of all walking on water. And now he's, they're watching him as he goes by them. The reminisce as they reminisce in their minds, just, their minds are literally going wild, I'm sure. As they see him walking by them, disappearing. You cannot see my face, the Lord said to Moses, for no one may see me and live. They thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Now they're saying they saw him. They recognize who this is in his humanity, but there's something that's completely ghostly about this, something that's divine, something that's spiritually being observed by them at the same time. And what does it bring to them? It brings this sense of terror. We see this again and again. Great catch of fish. Great catch of fish. You know, that, that moment when Jesus is going to go out to do some, he wants to have them take him out in the boat and show him how to fish. He says, take me out of the deep water for a catch. And they say, oh, okay, Lord, well, we've been fishing. No, okay, we'll just take you out and give you a lesson on fishing. And what was the result? He just sat there and watched them throw the thing, and he just said, hey, you know, throw on that side. I can almost see Peter going, looking at the other guys like, oh, boy. He wants to see if we can do this left-handed as well as right-handed. He throws it over there, and suddenly there's so many fish in that net that their boat starts to sink. They think they're going to be rich, and so they call their partners really quick to come out and help them. They come out, and they start pulling in that net, and it starts sinking their boat too. And remember the result? People fell, Peter fell down before and said, Go away from me. Who? Lord. For I am a sinful man. Suddenly it's not a fishing story. Suddenly it's a God-appearing story. terrified immediately he spoke to them and said take courage I am <laughs> Jesus used that word several times didn't he did it always get a great result what, did, what happened when he said I am to the Pharisees but they would start picking up rocks to throw him why because they said, you being a man are declaring yourself to be God. It was the word, the designation that when Moses said to God in Exodus 3, verse 14, suppose I go to the Israelites and, they say to, and, I say, and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And, ask, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am that I am 
I have existence within myself. I'm the eternal one. I'm the everlasting one. I'm the infinite one. I'm the unchangeable one. These characteristics that only exist in God. These attributes of God that only exist in Him and they're revealed by His name. I am the one who has existence in myself. I don't, I'm not eternally regressing or eternally reproducing. I am eternal. I define eternal. I've always been. I always will be. There's no God before me, no God after me. Before the worlds were formed, He existed. It says this in, in John chapter 1. In the beginning, before the beginning, I am. What an incredible thing to say to them. Do you think he's, he hasn't said, he said take courage, but he's take, take courage for what? Take courage with, with the wind and the sea. It might have been what they thought he was saying until he says this, and suddenly he's saying take courage because I am is here. The one is here. It's clearly, without doubt, what he's saying to them. Take courage. I am. It is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them. And the wind died down. They were completely, what? Amazed. (laughs) They were looking at something that just weren't getting their head around. They were seeing the incomprehensible God before them. The one. And what was their response? They were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. You know, the Bible says that Jesus is a man of suffering. Can you imagine the, this humanity, the suffering of not having anybody on the earth that knows what you're talking about? No one recognizing who you are? No one seeing that the things you're doing are connected to the divine nature? Talk about hardened hearts. He came into His own, the Scripture says, and His own did not accept Him. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And He did not come to condemn the world. Why? Because the world's condemned already. Jesus doesn't come to give somebody a chance to be condemned. They're already condemned. We are condemned at the second of our conception. And as soon as we're born, we start sinning. The problem here is not that they don't understand. The problem is that they are hardened. Their hearts are dead in trespasses and sins. Yes, they're with Jesus. Yes. But it's very clear that the things they don't understand is because they're not awakened to understand them. 
they're the classic illustration that Paul brings out in Ephesians chapter 2, especially in many other places, that these persons are dead, unable to see, unable to comprehend, unable to choose. No one, it says in Romans 3, chooses him. No one fears him. They're all unrighteous. There's no, not one righteous, including these persons here. The thing that Jesus is showing them and should be showing us how desperate these persons are because in the very presence of God and all His glory, they don't see it. They need something else. They need something else besides loaves and fish and seas calming. They need what they are seeing with their eyes, but yet not comprehending in their hearts. Who is this person? The terror comes from, who is this? Who can do this? Who is the Christ? Who can change this deadness into life? The one who makes us alive in the midst of our transgressions and sin. Jesus is coming to please the Father here. He doesn't seem to be reaching these guys. He's coming to please his Father, to do his Father's will, coming to prepare a way for us so that he can then usher into that kingdom his subjects, his people, his elect, his sheep. My sheep will hear my voice, he says. Even today, there's this big discussion always about what you do to present the gospel. You simply preach it. You don't have to make anybody believe anything. That's the Holy Spirit's work. The way is prepared for us. Already prepared for us to be ones who declare the grace of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light, as Peter says. And so we see this stage being set. We see this appearing taking place. We, we so calmly and readily say, I was born again. I understand all this because I was born again. I was born of the Spirit. Jesus said, there are many prophets and wise men who long to see what you see, but they never saw it. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. What a blessed place we are today to have seen him, understand him, received him as our Lord and Savior. Well, this text concludes, this series concludes, this section concludes about discipleship that Jesus has entered into and Mark has, has used to encourage current disciples that experience many of the same things. In verse 53, when they had crossed over, they landed in Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran through the whole region carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was.
And wherever he went, into the villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick on the mar- uh, in the marketplace. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and he who touched it, and those who touched it were healed. All who touched it were healed. The ministry continues. The observation continues to be missed, doesn't it? He's a healer. Let's touch him, and we'll get what we want. But what is really taking place, what is really being opened up, is the presence of a kingdom that is coming through a Messiah who is bringing it. Thank God that we have eyes to see and ears to hear. Amen. Father, we praise you, we glorify, we magnify you, Holy One. Open our eyes today afresh. Let us see the focus of what Jesus has done and who Jesus is. He is the Christ. He is the incarnate one. Lord, may we have him on our hearts. Holy Spirit, pour into our hearts a new love, a new appreciation, a new desire. Not just a willingness, not not acting on our will, but a desire. We, We have a desire that manifests itself in our flesh. Wow, that was a great meal. Wow, that was a great movie. We we know that, but make yourself so powerful and so prominent in us, Lord. What a glorious Savior we have in Jesus Christ. Awaken us, Lord, especially in this day when people are reaching out and grabbing for something. They want to see something real in their life. They want to see something authentic, dissatisfied with the kingdom of self. Lord, use us. Let us have within us that water that overflows to eternal life and just bubbles up into conversations and bubbles up into writings and bubbles up into things that we observe. This is your world and we praise you. Thank you for your kingdom that we live in today. Waken us that we might be ambassadors of waking others. In Jesus' name.